So, hello everybody. Um, decided to do this class in the asynchronous manner uh, by recording it and just uploading it so that you can <clears throat> watch or listen or whatever you want to do. It's a class I was really excited about teaching in person, but this is the way it's going to have to be. And it's the class on gender theory, or I guess as the church or other critics of gender theory call it gender ideology. We'll get into that a little bit later on. <clears throat> as we've been talking about, uh, we need to be able to situate sexual ethics uh, within an historical context. And so in the contemporary world, uh, the biggest topic or theme tends to be gender, gender identity, transgenderism. Uh, you could also say all the LGBTQ issues. We see it everywhere, media, politics, and we're beginning to see it uh, manifest more and more in churches and in Catholic schools. And so there are certainly pastoral and policy issues that need to be discussed. And <clears throat> going back to Carl Truman's book, um, sort of this issue of gender and particularly transgenderism, which we're not going to talk about today. We're going to deal with that a little bit later on in the semester. It's where a lot of this philosophy and culture change all leads to. However, as good as the book is, and as much as I've recommended it, it does not deal specifically with gender theory as sort of a intellectual enterprise, as I guess you would call it a type of philosophical endeavor. And truthfully, not too many of the works that I've seen from a Catholic or even a secular perspective criticizing gender ideology uh, or the way it's manifested in transgenderism and the sort of like <laughs> gender on a spectrum. Um, very few deal with gender theory itself and its origins as a philosophy. And, and, and as I've said, I want to be able to address this and particularly the arguments that are made. I think Abigail Favale's book, The Genesis of Gender, does a really good job of actually getting into these things. But we need to actually try to understand it instead of just erecting straw men and tearing them down. So I spent a fair amount of time this summer uh, reading different things on gender theory, uh, different philosophers. And as I said, it, it can be very confusing, obtuse, and very liquid and difficult to read. I am in no way, shape, or form an expert on this. I Hopefully, I'm not explaining anything incorrectly. But I want to explain it in a way that sort of when all the pieces came together, the light bulb went off in my head and I understood a lot of what's been said or is being said. Now, granted, most of the, the talking heads of the media have no idea what they're talking about. Um, but yet there is a logic to this, as twisted as you may think it is. Um, and that's what I really want to get to. And hopefully what helped me understand it better will hopefully help you to make it make a bit more sense. But I want to begin by making some <clears throat> distinctions and offering some definitions. Um, and these are words that we sort of throw around now, uh, particularly because of the influence of gender theory and gender studies, uh, to be able to define them up front um, so that we can understand it better. And so regardless of the validity of any of this, whether you agree with it or not, um, these are the words and the ways they're defined that tend to be part of the social discourse. 
And there honestly is some truth in this, um, as hopefully I'll point out in a second. The main thing is the, the, the difference are the two words of sex and gender. For many, many years, centuries, they were sort of almost used interchangeably. Uh, but they are no longer synonymous. Um, and, and there are all kinds of words and languages and definitions, as we'll see, is very important to this whole endeavor. But I want to try to use the American Psychiatric Association, the APA's own definitions. The current ones, and also the ones that I had uh, taken from the internet about six or seven years ago, when I first started talking about uh, these gender issues. And so let's begin with the word sex. Now this is straight from, from their website, apastyle.apa.org. Um, this is sort of the style of how we should write or talk about these things from their perspective. So sex, quote, sex refers to biological sex assignment. Use the term sex when the biological distinction of sex assignment e.g. sex assigned at birth, is predominant. Now, okay, there's this distinction between sex and sex assigned at birth. Let's go to the definition that I got a number of years ago from the same organization. Sex refers to a person's biological status, and it's typically categorized as male, female, or intersex i.e. atypical combinations of features that usually distinguish male from female. There are a number of indicators, biological sex, including sex chromosomes, gonads, internal reproductive organs, and external genitalia. So notice the difference. So we've gotten away from this idea of biological or sex rooted in biology. Uh, now it's just sex assigned at birth. What the doctor sees what it appears to be, uh, and that's what that, that is, is put on the birth certificate. But I, I still want to use it in the way that I think is very reasonable still to use as uh, sex as being something biological. It is something objective. It is rooted and centered in the body and in the person. I also want to add these little traits that they, they, they mentioned. And one of them, I'm glad they mentioned sex chromosomes. It's in your DNA. Uh, is also gametes. The male biological body cannot produce eggs. Impossible. And the female biological body, woman's body, as we'll call it, cannot produce sperm. Uh, so I'm not going to get into this whole distinction between sex and sex assigned at birth. For the purpose of our discussion, I think we can just settle on sex as biological reality rooted in the body. So what is gender? So current APA website says, quote, gender refers to the attitudes, feelings, and behaviors that a given culture associates with a person's biological sex. And so we see um, gender is a social construct and a social identity. Uh, so the, their gender is this idea of it's, it's the social construct of these attitudes surrounding what it means to be male or female or what a culture thinks masculine or feminine is, but it also is connected to identity. Let's go back to the old definition that I used to use from the same website. Gender refers to the attitudes, feelings, and behaviors that a given culture associates with a person's biological sex. 
behavior that is compatible with cultural expectations is referred to as gender normative. Behaviors that are viewed as incompatible with these expectations can constitute gender nonconformity, unquote. So uh, again, I, I'm going to stick with the second one that we use uh, for the sake of our discussion argument. But basically, both agree that gender is not sex, though it's related to sex. Um, that it's a social construct that an individual chooses to or is able to conform to or not. Uh, these cultural expectations, constructs of what is masculine, what is feminine, but they're not objective. They are relative to cultures and times. And, you know, while it tends to be something that is shifting, not rooted in uh, the body or biology as opposed to sex. And the truth is, I think this is somewhat of a valid distinction. Uh, that there is a sense that gender or what we understand to be expressions of masculine and feminine do change in time and cultures. And I give you some examples of this. Imagine that you were at mass and a bunch of biological males walked in with big powdered wigs and puffy shirts probably look at them and laugh at them like they're crazy. Why are you guys wearing that? But yet, during the, 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 the high monarchy in France, it was very customary for men to dress in this way. You've seen all the pictures. It was very masculine. Women tended to love it. But things changed culturally. And over time, well, now we look down upon that. We also talk about, you know, this, this idea that girls like pink and boys like blue. But in reality, for a majority of history, it was exactly the opposite. Blue was associated with women or girls. Why? Because blue is the color of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And it wasn't pink associated with guys or with boys or men. It was red. It was a fiery anger, passion, it just sort of toned down and made it to pink. And somehow there was a flip uh, over time. And so, yeah, it can change. Guys can like pink. Women can like uh, blue, it, you know, it, it really uh, can shift. But instead of talking about that, we're going to get into sort of gender as a social construct. When it comes to this whole debate about transgender, the key here is the term gender identity. And I'll give you the definition from the APA website. Gender identity is a component of gender that describes a person's psychological sense of their gender. Many people describe gender identity as a deeply felt inherent sense of being a boy, a man, a male, a girl, a woman, or female, or a non-binary gender. For example, gender queer, gender nonconforming, gender neutral, agender, gender fluid. It may or may not correspond to a person's sex assigned at birth. Presumed gender, based on sex assignment, or primary or secondary sex characteristics, refers to one sense of oneself as male, female, or transgender. And so basically, it's one's sense of masculinity or femininity, of being a man or a woman, boy or a girl, that may or may not uh, correspond to one's biological sex. If you want to call it sex assigned at birth, you can do that. 
So what are my comments? It's basically, this is where the subjective experience comes in. When you have the objective reality of the body, this biological, here is the subjective experience of what I feel, often very deeply and passionately. Not here we're talking about our quote-unquote sexual orientation, we'll discuss that later, but, but what I feel in my body. Um, so it is subjective. Uh, while this is gender identity, while sex tends to be objective or biological. So technically, a transgender person is a person whose subjective experience of their gender, of being masculine or feminine, is not in accord necessarily with their biological sex. That's why you could hear it say uh, someone's a girl trapped in a boy's body. Another term you hear is cisgender. Uh, this is gender theory terminology. Cis, C-I-S, is Latin uh, for the same side as. And so basically, it is a descriptor, politically charged, fine, but still accurate in describing the opposite of transgender, where gender identity lines up with one's biological sex. Now, of course, as you've seen, there are all these other categories which we're not going to get into now as part of uh, liquid modernity. Um, but this all deals with people's experience. And right now, we're not talking about experience or even sort of subjectivity, but we're talking about theory, philosophy, thought, and getting into understanding what gender theory is. And it really is hard, or at least it was hard for me, to find a good definition. And so what I did is I just took the definition at the top of Google, from some website called Gen Springer Link. And so I'll read it. Now, gender theory is the study of what is understood as masculine and or feminine under queer behavior in any given context, community, society, or field of study, including but not limited to literature, history, sociology, education, applied linguistics, religion, health sciences, philosophy, cultural studies. Now looking at that, I'm going to disagree. That's more of a definition of gender studies, if you ask me. Gender theory is something else. You can study gender theory, but gender studies is taking the theory and applying it to these different cultures uh, and fields of study. And so it just sort of shows that it is really kind of hard to define. Um, and so what I found helpful and trying to pin this down and understand it, is to first see where it comes from, the roots of gender theory. And so I'm going to present a super brief overview until we get to the real heart of what gender theory is or its origins. The first is we can say that the roots of gender theory come in particularly second wave feminism. Uh, we've talked about that before, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, the second sex of what it means to be a woman and sort of the roles of women in society and culture versus what a woman is. So without second wave feminism, um, I, and I would also say in a certain sense, the advent of the pill, which sort of gave us control over the body, but I guess that gets more into the specifics of transgenderism. Um, there is definitely an influence there, and uh, Abigail Favalli's book will get into that. 
but also a man, a doctor called Dr. John Money, who in the 60s was a doctor at Johns Hopkins. He might have even been head of surgery. His, as a doctor, his idea was that, um, whether he didn't get into sex and gender, that basically all of this masculinity and femininity is socially constructed, that there's no biological predisposition and that you could raise boys as girls and girls as boys. And if you did it, no one would really know the difference, uh, particularly the, the, the kids would not know the difference. Well, this theory ended up encountering reality with uh, the story of the Rymar twins, R-E-I-M-A-R, these two boys who were born in the Midwest. In the 60s, <clears throat> they were experimenting or using carterization for circumcision. One of the boys, the twin boys, uh, his basically soldered his penis, his genitalia off. And so they went to Dr. Money, and Dr. Money said, listen, it's not going to really matter. We'll do a little surgery here. Basically, we're going to raise him as a girl, and the other is a boy, and because they're both twins, we'll see how it turns out. Well, if you watch the documentary or you read the story, it did not turn out well at all. Biology, hormones started kicking in, uh, and... The story is fascinating. I first encountered it in a book by a man named John Colapinto called His Nature Made Him. Uh, it ended up very, very tragically uh, for, for both of them. And I think is a story that says that as much as we may want to adapt gender theory, if you like it, is going to run up against biology. But it's the third point that I really am going to spend most of my time on. Um, and this is critical theory as a branch of philosophy, uh, as sort of a branch of or connected to postmodernism. And this is the point, and this is what I want to have you understand. Gender theory is a, a branch or an offshoot of the overarching critical theory. Other types of critical theory, critical race theory, and other ones we can discuss, uh, but it's all rooted in this critical theory, which is sort of the epitome of postmodernism. Said it before, I'm going to em emphasize it. When we're talking about postmodernism, we're basically meaning postmodern era of philosophy and thought and history. Post enlightenment. Uh, it's a rejection of, a critique of, a deconstruction of. Enlightenment thought and values, we basically call classical liberalism. And we saw some of the traits of this in, in our earlier class, criticism, deconstruction, tearing down binaries and blurring boundaries, and basically challenging, uh, trying to tear down modernity and sort of, you know, liberal democracy. And so the biggest influence uh, of critical theory, and I guess you could almost sort of say is the real heart of it, is the French critical school, uh, made up of a number of different philosophers, but the two big ones whom you may have studied are Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, who both came to ascendancy in the late 60s, early 70s, and into the 80s. Uh, Derrida, which certainly had a big influence even on gender theory, uh, his basic focus is language and narrative. That, that is our language, our words, uh, that basically construct reality. 
uh, that, that there is no real reality, uh, that it's all sort of a amalgamation or a construct of language. Again, I'm not an expert at Derrida. It's very, very difficult to understand. Uh, but the one who's the real big influence that we're going to focus on is that French philosopher Michel Foucault. Uh, he's the guy with the bald head and the turtleneck. Um, and again, very complex thought, very difficult to read. I'm not an expert on Foucault at all, but I did spend some time trying to really understand him. And, and while Derrida focused on language, it appears that, that Foucault focused on power, but not in a Marxist sort of revolutionary way, where here, uh, the bourgeoisie, they have the power, the means of production, the proletariat must rise up and overthrow them. This goes way beyond that. But that power is sort of dispersed throughout the culture. As a book Cynical Theories that I mentioned talks about, power for Foucault is envisioned as a grid. There's this grid that is a web that is in culture and society, and power is everywhere. Uh, power of those in control, uh, of language, of society, of so many different aspects. And so we always have to be looking at power. Foucault saw most everything through this hermeneutic of power. And sometimes it's so present, we can't even see it. Um, so again, I, hopefully you can kind of understand this, but power as uh, this the powers that be, government, social forces, whatever, um, exerting it over the populace, over others, over individuals, and it's in every aspect of our life. But the one sort of aspect of this power that he talks about is the one that I want to focus on, and I think I'm focusing on it correctly. It's uh, what Michel Foucault called biopower. And you can see him talk about this in a couple of different places, in particular, uh, his history of sexuality, I think volume two. Biopower, of course, from the Greek bios, meaning life. And so we're gonna get into this understanding of what biopower is, hopefully I can explain it. But you gotta go back and remember that this postmodern, post-structuralist, uh, critical attitude towards the enlightenment. Uh, criticizing the thought, uh, this idea of reason, uh, but also remember that the Enlightenment also sort of dovetails with the scientific revolution, where we begin to see the world in technological, scientific terms, um, where we use science and technology to exert power over nature. Uh, where all of a sudden we, we uh, the scientific medical terminology is, is ever present. Um, but there is, just as the dis dis decision to sort of, you know, deconstruct uh, modernism and the Enlightenment, there's also a suspicion and a desire to deconstruct science and technology, or at least as, as it's conceived in as a theory, and put into practice uh, through language, but also through different constructs in culture, that power is exerted through that. 
Um, and it's a power that particularly is exerted over life. So you could say, well, there's engineering and all these other things, but particularly over life um, and, and our human bodies and what it means to function as a biological individual within society. And so his argument, again, I hope I understand this, basically goes that before the Enlightenment, rulers, so the Middle Ages or before, used to exercise their power, their political power, or whatever you want to call it, over their subjects, over people, over the society with a threat of death. Either you do this or I'll kill you. You follow me or I'll I'll starve you out, whatever it is. And so you could, even though I don't think he uses this term, you could call it necropower, the power of death. But the Enlightenment comes and there's this new... A renewed vision of the dignity of the human person and hope for progress and science and <clears throat> governments are those in political or social or cultural power move away from this idea of death you don't have public executions anymore but instead they still want to hold on to and maintain their power uh, disseminate it throughout the culture so instead they are going to use life biopower. And so here is uh, actually Foucault describing it in the History of Sexuality 1, not 2, I got that wrong, published in 78. He says, biopower is a power that exerts a positive influence on life, that endeavors to administer, optimize, and multiply it, subjecting it to precise controls and comprehensive regulations. And so I think it's a pretty clear definition is that basically that here we have science legitimizing our knowledge and through our discourse, through the regulations put on in a culture, uh, through these controls over health and biology, power is going to be expressed and setting scientific discourse up as the supreme authority in matters of hygienic necessity. Oh, you know, we understand now where germs come from and what it means to have a healthy diet and how we need to avoid uh, different pandemics. And so what happens is that, as it says in cynical theories, Again, I'm using a lot of their, it was that book that really helped me understand this, that science is a form of oppressive discipline. It establishes categories and asserts truths uh, with rigorous authority and social legitimacy. And so uh, the powers that be uh, can use science and its terminology and its founding to be able to, in a positive way, exert control over its people. You know, we care about health, we care about fitness, especially the biological science, uh, which sciences which legitimize the knowledge that the powerful use to maintain their dominance. Again, who are the powerful? You could, you could say it's the political power, cultural power, social power, whatever it is. It's using science and terminology, the biological sciences, to exert authority. And Foucault will say there are two poles 
which uh, and the Enlightenment enabled this biopower, this power over life. First, it's basically seeing the body as a machine, um, the sort of Cartesian view of Isaac Stinza, but sort of that it can be controlled and regulated, um, and that through discipline, exercise even, that we can, you know, use that body as a machine and have dominance over it. And so we teach discipline in schools, uh, in the army, whatever it is. But, but then and there's also something called the species body, or sort of like regulating the body over the human species as a whole, not so much as the, the individual body as a machine. Again, I think I'm understanding this. My promotion of regulation of birth, level of health, life expectancy, regulations of the population. And so it's this idea of like, you know, like here's the food pyramid or tables analyzing health, uh, distribution of resources, um, you know, population density, life expectancy, all of these things, oh, you know, we want to live a long time. So let's look at the charts. What does science say? And it's a way of exerting dominance, particularly particularly in speech. Uh, the more we hear about it in the media and government regulations over uh, food and drugs and, and our health, um, talking about it and using this terminology sort of is a way of manifesting the power in the grid. And so cynical theories, again, this is on page 101, says, quote, something is brought into being, placed into meaningful categories, and made real by behaviors and expectations coded in speech, unquote. This is going to be really important when we get to gender theory itself. Particularly, we see this in the areas of biological sciences, uh, with all the, the way we talk about things, the rules, the regulations, the restrictions on calories and health or whatever, you, you know, what, how much exercise you have to have a day, how many steps you have to have a day. This is a way for governments to control and exert power. And, you know, it's ironic, though. You know, so this tends to be a very liberal way of looking at things. And this is my own commentary here. Uh, this, this sort of people, it's the liberal side that is deconstructionist, the progressive side. But yet all these arguments of suspicion of power and, and government's control of hygiene sounds like we heard during the whole vaccine debate during the pandemic. Here we have governments using health and hygiene uh, and the need to be vaccinated, the need for social distancing to control the population. So, so it's ironic, and again, I'm sure there are articles out there, or YouTube videos that talk about it, that how governments use these things uh, in order to exert power, but yet this very liberal progressive idea of deconstructionism um, is something that actually can, can have a lot of truck with the more conservative organizations or ideology that's suspicious of um, the government and of power. But particularly here for, for Foucault, and then later, as we'll see, for gender theory, uh, this is specifically in the realm of sex and sexuality. And so uh, he talks about that particularly since the 17th century, there's lots of talk about sex particularly to impose categories. And I think he's the one who talks about this idea of a homosexual person as a fairly recent uh, term. That you didn't, you didn't 
label people this, but all of a sudden these labels of heterosexual, homosexual were all there. And they were used to not only describe realities of the body and sexual orientation, but also using uh, medical authority and psychology to classify homosexuality as a psychopathology. Uh, and so here, critical theory exposes or attempts to expose how language and all these categories and all this talk about sex and what it means was used to impose power. And so Foucault is, is, is hitting up against this to say, no, we need to break these bonds. That uh, We need to liberate our sexuality. That Even to the point where he actually sort of advocated for uh, lowering the age of consent in France. He had a number of intellectuals. I think it was in Le Monde they wrote a, a letter for this. Uh, and so regardless if it's sexual practice, sexual identity as we call it, Foucault, I believe, was an avowed practicer of homosexual activity, um, that all of a sudden these, these norms and all the science and this terminology is used to box people in and oppress people, the, 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 the political or the social mass. And so we need to expose it to break it down and, and, as we'll see, eventually use political power to help overcome it. But it's really all about language, and that's when I guess in a certain sense Derrida is wed to Foucault. Uh, and even the binary of man and woman and what it means to be masculine and feminine. And so this is where we make the jump, because Foucault was one of, if not the largest influence on the real individual who was the genesis of gender theory as we know today, and that is Judith Butler, a professor at UC Berkeley. Now, I'm not an expert of Judith Butler. She is notoriously difficult to read. I, I didn't make half a word right. doesn't make sense to me at all. But I have read some of her stuff, and I've read some commentary, so I'm going to do my best to betray her thought. Uh, I'm not really offering a critique here, a little critique at the end, but I want you all to understand this because... Particularly now, we're getting down to this idea of biopower and gender and even biological sex. You're going to see that there is actually reasoning behind this claim or this questioning of we can really know what a woman is. It sounds ludicrous, but there is some reasoning behind it. So, I'm going to focus on her, her, her most famous book. I believe it was her first book that was published in 1990 called Gender Trouble. She did develop her thought, um, and I believe she's still writing today. But others have carried it on and nuanced it and changed it and, and really has become the field, as we know, of, of gender theory as a branch of critical theory. <clears throat> but she was very influenced by Foucault, particularly in this idea of power, and I would even say biopower. And so this is from one of her later books called Undoing Gender. I'll give you the quotes. The question, this is from, from Judith Butler. The question of who and what is considered real and true is apparently a question of knowledge. But it is also, as Michel Foucault makes plain, a question of power. Having or bearing truth, quote unquote, and reality, quote unquote, 
is an enormously powerful prerogative within the social world, one way that power dissimulates as ontology, unquote. As far as I understand this, remember, we're situating all of this within the overall, you know, postmodern rejection of categories, of metaphysics, of reality, and of truth. And so we are sort of imposing our own meaning on it. And while I as an individual might, we also have uh, organizations, governments, institutions that are using discourse, uh, using political means to exert power and sort of dissimulate it and saying, this is what it means to be. This is who you are. Ontology is about being. Uh, and so it exerts control over individuals, over being, by trying to explain it in a certain way. And particularly, we go back to these binaries of heterosexual, homosexual, man, woman, masculine, feminine. These are all language that uh, is used as an exertion of biopower, describing the human person, the human body, and these inclinations that we have. And particularly here in the realm of sex and gender. And so just in a certain sense, she's developing Foucault that sex and gender as categories is often within binaries that are customary in culture, particularly post-enlightenment, are ultimately oppressive. There are an expression of biopower, these words boxing people in, and they're not real, as she'll claim, because there is no nature, there is no transcendent reality. All these are, it's a social construct, one promoted by individuals, organizations, institutions in power uh, to, to sort of control people. And so what her project is, again, I don't want to reduce it all to this, is to sort of critique and dismantle particularly heteronormativity. The white male uh, who, who says this is male, this is female, this is masculine, this is feminine, heterosexuality is the normal way, homosexuality, everything else is aberrant. Uh, so to, 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 to what she calls to, to queer, to, to, to see things that fall outside of the binary. And it's going to be gender theory that normalizes these things because the binary is an exertion of power particularly through the white male and this heteronormativity. But her most famous uh, idea is, is that gender, specifically here, is performative. And when I say performative, even when I use the words role, I'm not talking about, or she's not talking about acting, like master thespian. And I'll let uh, the authors of the book Cynical Theory sort of explain it better than I could. She says, Butler claims that gender roles, again, like the role in acting, uh, I think is somewhat connected here, are taught and learned often unwittingly through socialization as sets of actions, behaviors, manners, and expectations, and people perform those roles accordingly. Gender for Butler is a set of things a person does, not something to do with who they are. It's action. It's not ontology. It's doing, not being. 
Society enforces these actions and associates them with linguistic cues like male and manly. So these roles become real through gender performativity, through these actions, through these living it out in culture, even in our bodies. And so these roles of masculine and feminine and the actions that come with it, the performances that come with it, are indeed, in a certain sense, expressions of power. From the youngest age, she claims that we are taught to act them out. This is how a boy acts. This is how a girl acts. But this is all a social construct. It's not real. Since birth, we act these out. And as we come to believe they are real instead of socially constructed. Well, this is definitely what it means to be a man. And you're not, you're not uh, acting a card with the binary. So you're you're falling outside of the norm, and it gives it a, a chance to critique or to attack. Um, and by doing so, what happens is by continuously acting this out and, and, and putting these gender roles, which are all socially constructed, we perpetuate the social reality called gender. And so it's really interesting. Remember a few years ago, it was the, the, when it came to sexual orientation, homosexuality, we were born this way. Well, this wouldn't work with gender theory. You're not born this way. There's no telos. There's no anything there. If it is, then it's just a culture that puts meaning to it. We are socialized uh, in this way, not born this way. And so now... You know, because in a certain culture, particularly in the West, everyone acts this way. It's male or female, it's pink, it's blue, it's what boys like, it's what girls like. It just becomes this unconscious reality. It's living in the matrix. So Abigail Favalli sort of describes it as saying it's this unconscious, socially compelled performance that creates the illusion of essence. The more we do it, the more we act it out, the more we act, we dress girls in dresses, and boys get crew cuts, it gives this illusion that there's some ontology there, that this is what it really means to be male or female. And it's what it, it makes it appear real and it creates these social expectations and power, or those who have the power, want to continue promoting this to be able to exert power over society and culture. And so really, this is how we construct it. We say that gender is a social construct. It is constructed by the consistent performance or acting out these roles till we come to believe that they are real. And so gender theory, according to Butler, means that we are going to deconstruct them. We're going to expose these binaries and break them down. Particularly, it's about delegitimizing masculinity uh, and heteronormativity uh, in a certain sense. You could say that this male power, in particular, if you want to bring race and sort of this intersectionality in there, it's white male power that is exerting it and the language and promoting science. Uh, most of the great scientists in Enlightenment, they're all a bunch of white men. Uh, and so as a result, we can't trust what they say because there's no meaning to reality. There's no meaning to science. It's just what's been imposed on it. It's what they say it means. And over the course of the past 400 years, 300 years, we've come to believe it. It's become part of the social imaginary. So I know that's very complicated, but I think or hopefully explained it enough. 
this is what gender theory is. But then she makes this radical claim, and this is sort of what I was really driving at, that our questions, is biological sex, not gender, which we can see, you know, has a, a socially constructed dimension, is biological sex also a cultural construct? And this, again, is from cynical theories. This is, this is the question of, well, how do we really know what it means to be a woman? And so our normal reaction is, well, look, you know, there's a woman's body. It acts like a woman. It has this, this person gives birth, whatever. But again, remember, there are no essences here. There's no metaphysical reality. And so cynical theory says, the author, quote, if the immutable character of sex is contested, Perhaps this construct called sex as a culturally, is as culturally constructed as gender. Indeed, perhaps it was always already gender. I'm sorry. If the immutable character of sex is contested, perhaps this construct called sex is as culturally constructed as gender. Indeed, perhaps it was always already gender, which the consequence that the distinction between sex and gender turns out to be no distinction at all. And so we've already sort of liquefied gender, but here, well, why do we say that a, that's a woman and that's a man? Well, and there are these sort of stable categories that we believe are grounded in biology and reality. Well, the, the critique is, or her argument is, is that it's just because science tells you so. It's power tells you so. That this is what it means to be a woman. This is what, I don't know what it means to be a woman. This is what a woman is because we give all these biological descriptors. This is what a man is because we give all these biological descriptors. And so she's not saying, and this is what Favale points out, she's not saying that sex differences or biological sex differences don't exist, but any, quote, categorization or meaning we ascribe to those differences is a matter of power, not of truth, unquote, because there's no truth. All it is is language asserted or exerted over culture and says, this is what a woman is. This is what a man is. And normally when we have recourse to try to describe masculinity, or male or female, biological sex, we have recourse to scientific and biological terms. But basically here, this is biopower, using all these different things to tell us what man is, what woman is. Now, ultimately, though, the, the body is real, but it's sort of a blank slate. There's no meaning inherent in it. Uh, so basically, why is what a man is or a woman is? Why are those biological category, categories, why is it in a culture that they have so much weight when we don't do the same thing for eye colors or hair color? There are all these differences, too. And so the reason we put so much weight in it is because power disseminated through the grid tells us through language this is what it is. It's a way to control uh, and to enforce that binary. You know, remember that there, there are no there are no natures here. There's no inherent meaning. Uh, the people in power over the centuries have made up categories, and so it's critical theories job your gender theories to trouble the binaries particularly the binary of heteronormativity. So I mean, hope I've explained this well. This is what it means to say, how do I know what a woman is? Well, because uh, the claim is, and I'm not saying I agree with this, 
because, well, we know what a woman is because a bunch of scientists and biologists tell us so. But we can look at history and see how governments and institutions have used that language to take people and set them into categories, to control them and to manipulate them. And so it's just this biological body, that biological body. It has no meaning. And the meaning that is put on it is through science, technology, biology, and expression of biopower. And so we need to trouble the waters, particularly in the areas of sex and sexuality. That's why, as crazy as it sounds, this is what they're trying to say. That's what you've got to argue against. And I don't see that happening a lot. And again, it's really difficult to argue against it. Because in reality, gender theory or critical theory is not necessarily there to put forth an argument, a reason, rational argument. Left at the Enlightenment thinkers. She, she was there, or Judith Butler, to trouble and disrupt these categories of gender and even possibly biological sex. That's why the book is called Gender Trouble. Is that trouble acts as both a noun, trouble with gender and these categories, but also a verb. She's there to, to trouble it. And so the latter part of her book focuses on drag and queer camp aesthetic, blurring and sort of making fun of what it means to be a man or a woman or what society tells us to. It falls outside of the norm, what she calls the politics of parody. We make fun of it and it disrupts the roles. And in doing so, eventually it sort of catches on and it makes us question or individuals in society question our assumptions upon which this gender performativity is based. What does it really mean to be a man? What does it really mean to be a woman? They're there to trouble things, to, to make a mess, to question these norms, even to the point of questioning the norms of incest. Or uh, where does that come from? Well, it's just put on by power. It's end up questioning everything. And we can see this is why it causes a lot of issues. Uh, and it's a way to not pose another argument, pose another uh, philosophical system, but to subvert the power struggle and to achieve liberation from categories and traditional binaries, particularly when it comes to male and female and heterosexual and heterosexual. Everything is fluid. There is no binary. That, as far as I understand it, is the heart of what gender theory is and why it's so difficult to argue against because it is so fluid and because it's so difficult to understand. And, and, and I want to try to give some credit to, quote unquote, the other side. Um, you may disagree with it, and there's a lot to criticize, but you've got to understand where they're coming from. And if you believe that there is no metaphysics, you have the nihilistic worldview, you can perceive these bodies out there and biological differences between man and woman, or what we call man and woman, but, but what we used to describe, the knowledge we think we have is all scientific and biological. If it had not just the gender performativity, but, but where do those terms come from? They come from power. It seems like, oh, we need to listen to the scientists. We need to listen to these people because they're the authority. But no, it is a way, it has been a way for them to put these binaries, put these, these restrictions on people. And so uh, we need to break out of them. And of course, I'm not exactly too sure that Judith Butler considers himself, herself a lesbian or transgender, uh, but she's there uh, to, to trouble the waters. 
And so a lot of the people who followed in gender theory and queer theory and these other ones that have come are there to do the same thing. Uh, it's a political arm to it, of course, as we see that gender theory has really begun to take hold. And so this is all fairly recent. When I talked about it, this really started in the early 90s and became an, an academia. Nobody was really paying attention to it. It's still way after John Paul II, the, the assumptions that he made about the body, which we're going to get back to. Uh, it really, though, sort of became entrenched in 2010. And, and it was a point where I remember, you know, oh, there's the women's studies department. Those don't exist anymore because women don't exist. It's all gender studies. And it's become part of this sort of social discourse, the social imaginary, particularly its ubiquitousness because of media, particularly social media and the influence. Uh, and again, I think as we talked about before, like here, you know, we live in this, this meta world and the, the realm of so, social media. It's easy to be disconnected from the body um, and to be able to believe a lot of these things. But it's not just critical um, gender theory, there's race theory, queer theory, whatever it is. These are all ways of taking these assumed things that we believe that science promotes, uh, that power promotes, in order to break it down. But the critique is, at least from a Christian or Catholic perspective, and even from like the traditional modern liberal perspective, is it's become an ideology. Uh, so entrenched, and, and it will it will deal with no uh, critique. And the irony is, is the same critique it makes of language is a way to exert power over cultures, groups of people. I think it's the same thing with this focus on language and pronouns. Uh, basically, the, the attempt to turn power against heteronormativity uh, by challenging and demanding language be used. But it is also crucial as a way when we start talking about what these things mean to move away from act or these certain activities that, again, even the critical theorist or Foucault would say, a homosexual activity or other types of things that were, were critiqued by cultures and critiqued by science, um, to move away from that, break it apart, that gradually we've moved to identity. Uh, and I think this is where the Truman's book comes in, where even though he doesn't really address this, is that all of a sudden when we start talking about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, a masculine, feminine, all of this, this is not about activity, this is about who I am. And as we're going to see a little bit later on, I think it does offer us a platform to really understand experience and somehow bridge the gap to identity of how we go from experience to identity and so I can offer a critique of gender theory but we're kind of like running out of time here uh, but although what I find from the church Pope Benedict's addressed it in the Curia his address the Christmas address to the Roman Curia in 2012 a Vatican document from the Congregation of Education that I had you read part of, male and female, he created them, offers a critique. Uh, and Francis, Pope Francis, even in Amoris Laetitia, calling it gender ideology. He says, it denies the difference and reciprocity in nature of a man and woman and envisage a society without sexual differences, thereby eliminating the anthropological basis of the family. The ideology leads to educational programs and legislative enactments 
that promote a personal identity and emotional intimacy radically separated from the biological difference between male and female. Consequently, human identity becomes the choice of the individual, one which can also change over time, unquote. So this is his critique, but it doesn't address the more fundamental thing of gender theory saying that well, biology is often imposed for this, this concept of biopower. There's sectoral critiques too, but it, it tends to be more of gender theory enacted in politics and culture and, and law. Um, but very few are going to go to the root of it, partially probably because they don't know it. And even if they did, it's hard to understand because it's so it's dense language. Uh, and so the critique tends to, and rightfully so, focus on political application, particularly in the area of transgenderism. Uh, but the ultimate critique that I think the Catholics are going to make is that it does not account for the body as a biological object properly. Uh, particularly, as we'll see, we believe a body inscribed with meaning and language and sort of becomes this ghost body. Or as Abigail Favalli says, gender becomes so removed from the body it's associated with stereotypes, stereotypical behavior. Um, we're going to get into that a little bit when we focus on transgenderism, but gender theory is not just about that. Uh, it's about something much broader. And so this is going to sort of bring us in the next class to the conclusion of our discussion of the status questionis and how it connects to what we've been discussing, particularly, as I said, identity and experience and hopefully lay out a roadmap for establishing an adequate anthropology and a renewed reverence for sex and sexuality. Um, so hope to, to do that next week and over the coming lessons. So listen, gentlemen, we are just starting here. If you have any questions or comments you want to discuss this further, uh, next week maybe we'll gather and have a little chat about it over a beer uh, if there's anything that we don't understand or we want to talk about. So hope everybody has a great weekend. God bless.